The first lesson this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. And the sermon text today comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation, concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I had intended to bring upon it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter, shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the questions that I wrestle with all the time is this. Can people change? Can people change? Are we just simply who we are with all our strengths and our limitations? 
Or can we grow and transform and become someone altogether new? Can people change? On the one hand, only a strict determinist would say that people cannot change at all because the human will is in fact an illusion to begin with and all behavior is subject to external causes. And on the other hand, no one who has studied human behavior or even just observes it every day would say that all of our actions are the pure, uninfluenced decisions of a perfectly free will. Clearly, we are drawn and shaped and blinded by all sorts of things that influence what we do. I was just speaking this past week with a woman I know in Denver whose brother was just released from prison after three long years. And her excitement was tempered with anxiety that her brother would not be able to avoid reoffending. After all, about 70% of those who are released from prison are arrested again within five years, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Had her brother changed, she wondered. Had he learned his lesson, or would his life always be a constant struggle to stay out of trouble with the law? Can people change? Well, I know it's common to see great optimism on the bookshelves about human capacity to change. The self-help bestsellers certainly convey the conviction that we can improve ourselves as humans. We can become better people with the right knowledge in hand. If we just knew better, we could do better. And we can learn the best practices for improving efficiency or emotional intelligence or financial responsibility. I, for one, am drawn to these sorts of programs for personal growth. I am a sucker for such books, and I have stacks of them. And it's amazing, you know, no matter how much time I waste on YouTube or how many lattes I buy, I maintain this surprisingly unshakable conviction that with just a little more reading, I can learn never to waste a moment of my time and to use every dime of my money efficiently and well. I'm ever the optimist, I guess. Still, though, most of us know the feeling of discouragement that sets in when change doesn't come, either in our own life or in the lives of someone we know and love. We never follow through on that plan to exercise or eat healthy or pick up a new hobby. Or worse, we slip back into the same addiction or our relationship remains toxic after many promises of change. Personal change can remain painfully elusive. Now, Christian faith is ambivalent about our own capacity to change. Some Christians say that if we just know the good, then we can do the good. And we know the good through the revelation of God's word in Scripture. Other Christians, however, maintain that we may know the good, but on account of our sin, we cannot choose the good, at least not consistently, because our whole being bears the effects of sin. But 
Although Christians are ambivalent about whether we can change, Christians are certain of the fact that God can change us. In other words, to whatever extent we can change ourselves through our own strength of will, we know that God can change us. When God is the subject and we are the object, change is possible. Like a pot in the hands of a potter, says the prophet Jeremiah, God is always shaping us. And God can reshape us when we do not listen to God or do what is right. But the manner in which God shapes us is not as straightforward as some of the one-size-fits-all self-help programs laid out in the books. God's work in our lives has a character to it that differs from all of those programs. Because God's work is tailor-made for each one of us individually, according to the plans God has for our lives. Whoever we are, God is shaping us to become more like Jesus Christ. That's the plan. That's the purpose. Jeremiah says that the people are like clay and that the potter is still working on. It's an incomplete project that is not yet what it shall be. When the potter sees that a vessel needs to be reworked, adjustments can be made. And a wise potter can salvage a project gone awry and recreate it into a magnificent new vessel. In the same way, God can remake us when we fail to embrace who we are in Christ. God brings about change by the power of God's Spirit at work in our lives. We are not merely the sum of our past mistakes. No, we are vessels being shaped into new creations. We are God's handiwork, as the scripture says, created to show forth the love and grace of our creator, which we know in Jesus Christ. And so the critical question for us then is not, can people change, but rather, how does God change people? And so with the conviction that change is possible because God is the one doing the changing, we can make a few observations about change from a Christian perspective. First, change is often subtle. Change is often subtle. It can come silently, kind of under the radar, as a gradual evolution away from the past and into the future. Sometimes we want change to be big and dramatic, right? I know. But until our very selves change, until character forms in our hearts and minds, our actions can only change for so long. And the process of change, as it takes place as character building, doesn't happen overnight. It can be slow. It might begin with a small change of routine, starting the day with 10 minutes of prayer, or committing to a new kind of mindset, like stating one thing you're thankful for at dinner. These changes can seem just subtle, but they accumulate into something powerful. Pastor Eugene Peterson named one of his books, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that's a helpful phrase, I think, to apply to our thinking about change. Because we're shaped not so much by sudden, enormous shifts, but over the course of a long period of time in which we continually seek the kingdom of God 
and follow after Christ. Change is often subtle. What's more, change requires community. It's a communal endeavor. I know that sometimes we want change to happen in secret, right? So that we don't have to reckon with the embarrassment that our shortcomings might cause. And so we resolve to change in the silence of our minds by the strength of our will in a particularly poignant moment. But inevitably, such change is brief and fleeting. Community takes the task out of our hands alone. Think about communities like Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, where people seeking the same kind of change come together to tell each other the truth of their lives the truth of their stories. Most would say that such community has been essential to their sobriety. And for all of us, confession and vulnerability are prerequisites to change. I know it can be hard to shed some of that facade we prefer to project to others, that outward appearance that we've got it all together. But to open ourselves to transformation, we must become a part of a community that can support and surround and encourage us, perhaps at times even correct us. There's deep wisdom in the Christian act of confession, because confession is at its core the practice of telling the truth, the practice of being honest, and honesty is a precondition for change. Christianity in America is often thought of to be more of an individual venture than a communal one, a matter of personal taste. Lots of people practice their faith largely on their own, with little interest in the community of the church. But the truth is, to be transformed, we need a community around us that shares our love for Christ and our desire to become more like him. In today's passage, God describes remaking not just an individual, but the whole house of Israel collectively. And in the same way, each of us comprises part of our collective whole, and we bear witness to Christ most of all as a gathered group. The deeper we invest in our community, the more we come to share in its collective transformation. Change requires community. And finally, and I would venture to say even most importantly, we must remember that change is never complete until we are united with Christ. Our transformation is not what saves us, nor is it what we should trust in the most. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is what saves us. And no matter how much we may change by grace over time, we will never outgrow our need for that same grace. In the end, we can spend our whole lives chasing ideals about who we can and should be. We can try again and again to be better, faster, stronger, to be right, to do the right thing. But in the end, we will still need grace. And the good news is that in the end, our God will still be the God of grace. John Newton was right when he said something like this. I'm not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man I wish to be. I'm not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be. 
friends, by God's grace, we can be changed. Subtly, in community, and all throughout our lives, we can be changed. And by God's grace, we are safely kept, no matter what happens, all our life long and unto everlasting life. So as the redemptive work of God continues to unfold in your life, my prayer for you today is that you may know the grace that accompanies every step of your journey at all times and in every way. Hallelujah and thanks be to God. Amen.